Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Jonah. Jonah will be reading chapter 1, verse 17, to the end of chapter 2. Uh, we're back in the book of Jonah after a three-week break where we looked at the value of mercy and justice in our church, and then last week we considered the resurrection. Now, this series, to remind you, is entitled Mercy Upon Mercy. And what we're going to do today is we're going to read this section of Scripture, and we're going to spend two weeks looking at it. Today, we're going to look at just the introduction. We're going to look at pretty much just one verse, and then next week we're actually going to dive into the contents of Jonah's prayer uh, from the belly of the fish. And although we just sat down, I do invite you to stand back up. Your standing is an act of worship. We read God's word and we receive God's word as it is a gift. So give it your fullest attention now. Reading from Jonah chapter 1 verse 17. Hear now God's word. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were trapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated, friends. And would you join me in prayer once more? Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing upon the preaching of your word. We know that the reading of your word is perfect for your word is your word and we receive it and we hear it. But as your spirit illuminates its truths to us, as he applies it into our hearts, we ask, Lord, for a special blessing that we would have the ears to hear and the eyes to see and a heart that is soft so that it is melted under the weight of your word, that it would conform us more and more into the image of Jesus so that we would be the people you have called us to be. Bless us now, O Lord, in the preaching and in this part of our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's once a little girl in her middle school science class who was learning all about marine animals, and she absolutely loved it. So out of curiosity, she raised her hand and asked the teacher, Sir, what kind of fish was it that swallowed Jonah up? Now, this teacher insisted that he didn't know because the story never happened. Well, the little girl said, it is true because it's in the Bible and everything in the Bible is true. Now, this man was convinced that the science, uh, science disproved the Bible, and so it, it irritated him. So he told the whole class, listen. It is impossible for any fish to have swallowed a man and for the man to have survived three days and three nights. But the little girl didn't seem bothered by his response at all. She shrugged her shoulders and said, well, sir, it's okay if you don't know. I'll just ask Jonah when I go to heaven. And even more annoyed now at her response, he snapped back. Well, what if Jonah isn't in heaven, but he's in hell? 
To which the girl said, well, then you can ask him when you're in hell. <laughs> and we get to that part of Jonah, the most well-known part of the book, one of the most well-known stories about the fish. Now, my point and interest this morning isn't to try and prove that this miracle was possible or that it happened. Because here's the truth. If you do not believe in an almighty, all-powerful God who is creator over all of his creation, then no amount of scientific or rational proof will ever get you to believe this miracle. And on the other hand, if your faith is set on a God who is maker of heaven and earth and everything over the sea, then that means no lack of scientific or rational proof will make you doubt this miracle. In the end, nobody disbelieves the Bible or disbelieves the fish story because of science. Ultimately, a refusal to believe in Jonah's fish story stems from a refusal to believe in the God of the Bible, a God who can do miracles. Now, in order to try to make science and scripture more compatible, some have gone as far as to dismiss every supernatural element out of this story. They say this story truly happened, metaphorically. This story really happened, spiritually which we respond, no, it really happened, period. But the question is, why must Christians insist on the historicity of this story? This seems like such an obstacle to many. Wouldn't it be easier to an unbeliever if we said, oh, well, that part was just exaggeration. Why must Christians insist that this event actually happened? Well, the answer is this. Later on in the New Testament, Jesus is in a confrontation. He's speaking with the scribes and the Pharisees. And this incident comes up because in Jesus's discourse with them, he says in Matthew chapter 12, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And when Jesus says that, it's important for two reasons. The first reason is this. Jesus himself is saying, remember that event? It happened. Jesus himself is affirming and attesting to the historicity of the Jonah fish story. But related to that, notice this, that Jesus parallels his own death, burial, and resurrection to the pattern of Jonah's entrance into the belly of the fish and his emergence out of the fish. Jesus is saying, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so too will I die be buried into the heart of the earth and three days later rise again in a victorious resurrection. Jesus himself is saying, everything that I've come to do in my death, burial, and resurrection is patterned after Jonah. And so if Jonah is merely metaphorical and figurative, spiritual and symbolic, then that will reduce Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection to something metaphorical and figurative, spiritual and symbolic. But Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection are literal and physical, actual and factual. And this is necessary to believe, to hold on to. It's worth defending because the gospel rests, we talked about this last week, the gospel rests on two foundational pillars, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ to lose one or the others, to lose the gospel. And so we insist that just as Jesus's death and resurrection was real, and he said, my death and resurrection is patterned off of what Jonah did, then what Jonah did is real. It means so much more than just this story. It means something theological. Now, I wanted to clarify that as many people have questions coming into this portion of the scriptures. But now as we turn to our passage specifically, uh, let's begin to do our work this morning. 
You know, our passage today is one cohesive literary unit. I know it begins at the end of chapter one, but it's actually one unit. And we know this because the author employs a technique that he calls, uh, that's called inclusio. He forms an inclusio, which is uh, he uses a verse to start the unit and uses a very similar verse to end the unit, showing that these are two bookmarks to one literary unit. So what do I mean? We started in chapter one, verse 17, and it reads like this. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And then he ends this section by using a very paralleled statement where he says in chapter two, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon, upon the dry land. And so what we see here in both verses is uh, the Lord is the main subject. He is the one who then sovereignly directs the fish. And then that fish accomplishes God's will and God's purpose for Jonah. And by using these two kinds of statements, he is showing that this is one unit that stands on its own. And that's important because the, the, the point here is that Jonah's salvation from the sea, from start to finish, Jonah's salvation is entirely in the hands of a sovereign God. Under God's sovereign orchestration and ordination, the word used here in verse 17 is appointment. The fish swallows Jonah up and then spits Jonah out because salvation is something that God initiates and God finishes. God begins and God completes. And Jonah in the midst of the belly of the fish comes to realize that salvation is entirely and wholly in the hands of God. And so in the midst of the fish, Jonah declares and cries out in chapter two, verse nine, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's our meditation this morning, our salvation. Now, what are we to do with our salvation? In Hebrews chapter two, verse three, the author is warning his readers by asking them, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And this question is really an exhortation. Don't neglect your great salvation. What are you doing with it? Salvation, like an insurance card, something you keep in your back pocket and that you don't need to use until one day you die, you appear before heaven and God says, what should I do with it? And you pull it out and you say, ha ha. I have salvation. Or is salvation something that you enjoy, something you cherish, something that you attend to, something you appreciate, something that you seek to build your life upon and ground your identity in? Are you neglecting your salvation? Or are you attending to it and appreciating it? When we look at our story today, we get a glimpse of our great salvation. Now, it's been over two months since we started this book. But let's review quickly. What's happened so far? Jonah is an Israelite prophet. He was called by God to go to the great Assyrian city of Nineveh to preach his message. Jonah refuses. He gets on a boat. He runs away. But God says, uh, uh, uh. He sends a storm after him. Jonah, as a result, is thrown overboard. He's drowning in a sea and he's left to die. But God says, I have different plans. So that's where we get Chapter one, verse 17, where we read, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now what Jonah has just experienced is salvation. He's been saved and spared by God from drowning in the sea when the fish swallows him. And so what we see here is that the Lord who appoints the fish to save him is, an ev is evidence, it's a glimpse, the picture of God's sovereign hand at work in salvation. 
So in order to attend to our salvation and appreciate our salvation, there are just two things that I want to meditate with you on. If you want to attend to and appreciate your salvation, here's the first thing. Consider the depth of your sin. Consider the depth of your sin. Now, the author in verse 17 tells us that God used a great fish. First word of clarification, it wasn't a whale. It was a fish. Second, why does God tell us that he used a great fish? Now, that great is the Hebrew word gadol, right? And so now you know, you know, you're a little more cultured now. You know an extra word, gadol, the Hebrew word for great. Now, why must we know the fish was a gadol fish, a great fish? And our first and natural instinct is to say, well, because the story sounds pretty unbelievable. And so in order to convey, to convince the reader, to show them it's credible and believable, in order to, what kind of fish must, swallow, you know, must, must it be to swallow a grown man? Well, it must be a great fish. And we think, yeah, it's a great fish because it's not a goldfish. It's a big fish. But actually, to reduce the great fish merely to understanding or to thinking that, oh, it was a great fish because Jonah's size was big. It's to miss the point. The fish wasn't great because Jonah's size was big. The fish was great because Jonah's sins were big. Now, what do I mean by that? When the book began, we said God gave Jonah a commission. The commission of Jonah 1 verse 2 was like this. Arise, go to Nineveh, that good old city, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Now, Nineveh is called a great city, a good old city. Jonah doesn't want to go, so he runs away. As he runs away, God runs after him. The way God stops him, the way God confronts him, the way God judges him, we read in verse four is like this. But the Lord hurled a great wind, a gadol wind upon the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And then of course we read a little later, he sent more than a great wind. In verse 12, we read Jonah saying, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So God's sending a gadol wind. He's sending a gadol tempest. Why? In an act of gadol judgment. Great judgment. The judgment is great. Why? Because Jonah's sins are great. Which is a humbling truth for us to realize because why is God's judgment against us so great? It's nothing to do with God. It's not because he's perpetually in a bad mood, perpetually angry, perpetually wakes up with, you know, a pain in his neck and his back and he didn't get enough sleep and didn't have his coffee. God's great judgment is because we have grave sins. So how does God save Jonah? Well, he punishes them by sending a great wind and a great tempest. So how does he save them? Verse 17, and the Lord God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. You see, friends, great fish is not because the fish was so big. Great fish shows the greatness of God's salvation. And God's salvation is so great because he delivered us out of a great judgment. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a physician turned to preacher, a Welsh preacher, and he writes this. He says, you measure the greatness of the salvation by measuring the greatness of the calamity from which it saves us. You arrive at an assessment of the value of the drug by considering the lethal character of the disease that it cures. God's salvation was great for Jonah because the fish saved them from dying and drowning in a storm. But why is God's salvation so great for you? 
because he sent more than a fish to deliver you from more than a storm. He delivered a savior to save you from his great wrath. God says in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, through the apostle Paul, that we await for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why is he a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Because what is he saving us from? Jeremiah 21, verse 5, God saying, I myself will fight against you with outstretched arm and strong arm, outstretched hand and strong arm, in anger and in fury and in great wrath. Dear friends, you have a great salvation because you have a great Savior who has saved you from God's great wrath. If you want to attend to, you want to appreciate your salvation, you must consider the depth of your sin. Sometimes we think, oh, I will love God more if I downplay my sin and overestimate, overemphasize God's love. But that won't increase the joy of your gospel. That will shrink your joy in the gospel. How do you increase your joy in the gospel? You take a long, hard look at the cross. You consider the depth of your sin, which was so wretched, it required the Son of God be nailed to a tree. And then you stay there long enough, not until you hate yourself, but until you're overwhelmed with a love that you see nailed and pierced to that cursed tree. Do you want to weep with tears of joy at your salvation? You want to find renewed strength in the gospel? You need to take a serious look at your sin. And then you take a sincere look at your Savior. Because looking upon the cross of Christ It'll show you the ugliness of your sin, but you gaze upon the face of Christ and it'll show you the beauty of your salvation. This in turn, dear friends, means don't shun repentance and confession as an enemy of the gospel. It is a great partner. For if you link arms with confession and repentance, it'll help you cherish your salvation. You want to attend to and appreciate your salvation? Consider the depth of your sin. But if we were left there, then we would be left and trapped in hopelessness. Here's the second point. Consider the reach of God's grace. The reach of God's grace. You know, the book of Jonah is already such a short book. It could have been shorter, right? God could have abandoned Jonah after Jonah abandoned God, and the story would have ended in chapter 1, verse 4. It would have been a bridge book. God comes to Jonah. Jonah runs away. God punishes Jonah. The next book, Micah. But it continues on. God pursues Jonah. And the question is, why? Was there nobody else quite like Jonah? Did nobody else have a passport that could get a prophet into Nineveh? Only Jonah had it? No, God could have raised another prophet. God could have chosen another prophet, a better prophet, a more eloquent prophet, a more powerful prophet, a more faithful, obedient prophet. But instead, instead he chooses to work with this prodigal prophet. Why? Why? Consider this. You know, I'm no pen snob. Um, I like certain pens. Pilot G2.5, Muji, you know, gel ink, 0.38. You know, I have my pen. Uh, But I'm not a pen snob. But there are pens I won't use. Pens I know you won't use either. You know what I'm talking about. The Bic round stick pen. 144 pens on Amazon for $14.50. It's 10 cents a pen. The reason it's so cheap, these pens are awful. I've never 
heard of a person, well, I've heard of a legend of a person who once used a big pen till it ran out of ink. It's a fairy tale, if you ask me. But why? We, you've, never, you've never used a big pen till it ran out of ink simply because you've never used a big pen that lasted more than a week. But when your pen runs out of ink, I mean, you may you know, lick it a little bit. And, you know, if you're a Korean, you learn that little trick, just like you, you know, do the uh, toothpaste. You lick it, you try to get every bit of ink, but once it doesn't work, what do you do? You throw it away. No big deal. You reach in that box of 144, now you have 142 left. And so we throw it away. We discard it. But if you ever walked into King of Prussia Mall, you may have seen that pen store, Mont Blanc. Mont Blanc pens, they're a different kind of pen. They're expensive. If your Mont Blanc pen doesn't work, you don't throw it away. You open it up. You see what's wrong with it. If it runs out of ink, you don't throw it away. You go and you buy ink and you refill it because it's worth something. So imagine that somehow you accidentally dropped a Bic pen into a toilet. Would you reach in and grab it? Absolutely not. Sometimes I drop a Bic pen on the floor and I look at it. I'm like, oh, it's gone. I've lost it. (laughs) You drop a Mont Blanc pen into a toilet, roll up your sleeves and you're going down. A several thousand dollar pen, of course you'll grab it. Why? Because some things are worth saving, some things aren't. I bring that up because let me ask you this question. What kind of prophet is Jonah? Is he a Mont Blanc caliber prophet or is he a Bic level prophet? You see, Jonah is discardable, dispensable, disposable. He's a dime of dozen. He's a 10 cent prophet. In fact, he's actually no prophet at all because he's making God lose money. So when God chooses to pursue him and save him, the reach of God's grace to go after this prophet is simply incomprehensible. It's confusing. It's mind-boggling. It's startling. Why would God go after Jonah? There are many more prophets in Israel. And it makes us wonder, which are you? Dear friends, are you worth saving or are you unworthy? Do you view yourself as a Mont Blanc saint or a Bic sinner? Here's the reality. If you don't think that your sins are that terrible, if you think your sins are actually tolerable, then yeah, you're going to have great self-esteem. You won't think so badly about yourself. I'm a good person, but you won't have a great salvation. But when you recognize your absolute unworthiness before God, that you are the chief of sinners, and yet he looks upon you with desire, love, and longing, that he has come after you, then who cares about your self-esteem? Because it's not derived in what you think about yourself. It's derived in the value and worth that God has placed on you. I have come after you. If you reach your hand into the toilet to pick up a big pen, that doesn't make that big pen worth $100. Because the pen is still worth 10 cents. But in the act of you going in and pulling it out, you're saying, I value this pen. The fact that God has come after us when we've run away from him and he's chasing after us as he did, Jonah shows us that God is saying, I love you. I value you. We are not worthy in ourselves, but our worth comes from the one who chases us. And all of this is by God's grace. Now, when we say God's grace, if I were to ask you, how are you to define God's grace? How would you define it? Most commonly, the definition is God's grace is his unmerited favor unmerited favor, a favor we receive 
without doing anything to deserve it. And that's right. That's correct. But in order to truly attend and appreciate our salvation, you must expand your understanding of God's grace. Grace is not simply unmerited favor. Listen, grace is not simply unmerited favor. Grace is favor that you have demerited. And what does that mean? I'm going to read you two quotes. First from the theologian Meredith Klein, who writes, Theologically, it is of the greatest importance to recognize that the idea of demerit is an essential element in the definition of grace. In its proper theological sense as the opposite of law works, grace is more than unmerited favor. That is, divine grace directs itself not merely to the absence of merit, but to the presence of demerit. Or maybe if that's a little confusing, let me read for you the words of J.I. Packer, who writes, The grace of God is love freely shown toward guilty sinners, contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their demerit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and who had no reason to expect anything but severity. And how do we see that in the Jonah story? When you look at Jonah, what's Jonah's problem? It's not simply that he failed to qualify for God's grace. He didn't fail to qualify for God's grace. He disqualified himself from God's grace. What's his sin? Jonah 1 verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, running away from God, disobeying God, forsaking his commandments. Do you understand that failing to qualify and disqualifying are two different things? You know, if you simply fail to qualify for God's grace because you weren't good enough, then your salvation is good. Oh, I wasn't good enough, but God gave me grace. Oh, my salvation is good. But if in fact you have disqualified from your, yourself from God's grace because you were so incredibly sinful, the salvation isn't just good. Salvation is great. Which do you believe about yourself? Did God save you despite your failure to qualify or did God despite you save you despite your disqualification? In order to attend and appreciate and enjoy and adore and love our great salvation, you must consider the reach of God's grace for you. Demerited favor. And the clarity by which you can then see the greatness of your salvation depends on the clarity by which you see the cross of Jesus Christ. Because if you're called to consider the depth of your sin and consider the reach of God's grace, well, how do I do that? Well, how do you consider the true depth of your sin? And it's upon looking at the cross of Jesus where you realize that my sin was so bad, it took nothing less than the Son of God being crucified and nailed to a tree, drinking the bitter cup I deserved, receiving the wrath that I deserved. How vile was my sin? The cross shows me. To stay in hopelessness and helplessness would do us no good. For then we appreciate the greatness of our salvation by looking at the cross and asking ourselves, how far did God reach in his grace? How gracious was God actually to me? And there you look upon the cross where you see that the son of God laid down his life for sinners. The creator dying for creatures the lawmaker taking the judgment of lawbreakers. And you see, that's how much God loves me. 
How do you attend to? How do you appreciate your great salvation? You attend to and you appreciate your great Savior. So let me ask you a question. How are you doing that? In what ways are you cherishing the one who drank the bitter cup so that your salvation would be sweeter and sweeter and sweeter? In what ways are you stealing time away from the world in order to hide and commune with God in word and in prayer? How much are you kindling that great song, Salvation Belongs to the Lord, and letting it become the soundtrack of your life? Dear friends, I love the detail of the great fish, but not because it proves that this story is true, but because it proves how great is our salvation in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me?